Hey everybody, it's Everyday Short Stories and I'm your host, David. Our second story slam was regret. Our next story comes from my brother-in-law, Jonathan, and his story of not regretting regrets that may have been regrets. Thank you, David. Let's give it up for uh, David Malley, yeah. without whom none of us would be here tonight. Um, so I just wanted to say that because uh, I, for those of you who've seen the videos online or who were here last time, uh, he kind of implied I was ungrateful when he introduced me. So I wanted to make it my mission tonight to make him regret that, the verbal bully that you are. So. What was I going to talk about now? Seriously. Got distracted by my barb. Okay. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's not often you get to come to a bar and talk about your regrets, right? That doesn't happen very frequently. <laughs> so I appreciate the opportunity. Um, regret's an interesting thing to me. Um, you know, I, I was, when David told me the theme for this week's uh, uh, show, I thought about it and I thought, well, first off, this is going to, there's a video and it's going to be out there, and so I got to be careful what I say. Um, a lot of, I know a lot of the people in this room, so that kind of takes a lot of those stories right out of the running. Uh, so, uh, and then I started thinking more about regret as kind of a concept. And, um, you know, I, I, there, there, there's something someone told me a long time ago. I've, I've taken, I, I work in a corporate environment, I take lots of leadership classes. And one of the things they say is that, you know, having a safe place to fail and a safe place to make mistakes is critical to being successful. And regret usually kind of uh, hangs around things that you've done that, that you know were mistakes, and and I think about them more as growth opportunities and things that I learned about myself from, and so you know with that in mind, it got even harder to think of things to talk about tonight. So that's my that's my intro into uh, what I, I'm going to talk about. What I talk about. So I had to go way back, and I think that no one has more regrets than than a teenage male uh, growing up in the 80s and 90s in, in Southern California. Uh, very easy to rack up a lot of regrets at that age. Um, with the type of people that you hang around. Um, so most of these stories are going to be about not me, but other people. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the first one I want to tell is about, a, I, I ran into two guys. Actually, they followed my sister home, uh, when, which is David's wife. Sorry, David. Um, they, they followed my sister home uh, when she was in, in junior high school, and they started hanging around her, and then they found out she had a brother, and at first they were scared of me, and then they actually met me, and they, they weren't scared of me anymore. Um, Kind of regret that, uh, and uh, and and but I started hanging around with them, and and they were a little more rough around the edges than the kids. I, I went to private school, and uh, these these were public school kids, and it was actually in those in those days. You seen all the movies from the '80s, right? It was really two different worlds. I mean, it was uh, uh, very different for, to be around these kids, and they took risks like you wouldn't believe. Um, one of the guys, um, I'll call him uh, Bobby. Bobby and I uh, used to like to go skateboarding together. And one of the things we like to do is there was a there was an elementary school near our house that was uh, had you know cement steps in front of an auditorium and you could ride your skateboard up and down the steps and do jumps and all this and we were horrible at it and we you know kept falling off and hurting ourselves but we had this dream there was this balcony or a kind of a cover that went over the front of the auditorium and you could climb up there on a tree that was next to it and we had this dream that one day we were going to climb up on the top of that thing jump our skateboard off and land it. And that would be the most awesome skateboard trick ever. We'd be legends in the neighborhood. And we talked about it all the time. And we get up there with the skateboard, and we look down. It was all concrete down below. 
And, you know, one of us would make some excuse, ah, you know, I, my leg's kind of bothering me and my knee's sore and, you know, I'm not, I'm not really feeling it today. Um, so fast forward about, oh, I don't know, maybe a year after we'd stopped goofing around like that. Uh, one day there's a knock at my door. My, my mother goes up, she answers the door. And who's standing there but Bobby? He's standing there covered in blood. <laughs> uh, one half of his skateboard in one hand. Who knows where the other half of the skateboard was? And my mom says, oh my God, Bobby, what happened? And he's like, is Jonathan there? She says, yeah, Jonathan, Jonathan, come here. And he's standing there, and I come around the corner, and he looks at me and goes, I made it. <laughs> okay, I guess it's not a story about regret, because uh, he, he was proud of that. Um, similar, similar story, the other guy that we used to hang out with, uh, we'll, we'll call him uh, Donnie. Um, Donnie, Donnie, uh, uh, had this idea. We had, we had one point we built this big skateboard ramp. You know what, anybody know what a quarter pipe is? Yeah. Big, huge skateboard ramp goes way up, right? So we had that out in this uh, church parking lot that had kind of a, a, a steep incline in its driveway that we could get some lot of speed on the skateboard and go up and down this thing. And uh, at one point, uh, Donnie comes up and he says, you know, we had this old BMX bike that was put together. I mean, it was just, you know how kids are, right? We found parts in different people's front yards that they obviously weren't using. And so, you know, we, we borrowed them and assembled them into a semi-useful bicycle. And uh, I don't even think this thing had a chain. And Donnie says, I'm gonna take that bike off that half pipe. We're like, oh, you're crazy, man, you're crazy. You're absolutely crazy. And, uh, and so he goes, no, I'm gonna do it. So he gets up on the bike and he goes down the hill and he's getting up a lot of speed. And as he comes up to the ramp, you, you, I look in his eyes and he's kind of, I can see there's some, there's some regret there. <laughs> and, but he's gonna do it, he puts his head down and he hits that ramp, and the front wheel of the bike goes one way, uh, the handlebars come off, the seat comes off, and I, defying the laws of physics, he somehow managed to go completely perpendicular the other direction from the momentum of everything that came off that ramp and, 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 and land it with minimal injuries, and uh, was very proud of that, so that's not really a story about regret either, is it? Uh, all right, let's see here, okay. This is a story about all three of us. So uh, I had an old Volkswagen Beetle. It was a 1966 Volkswagen Beetle. You're familiar with the car. Um, the 1966 model had a, a bumper in the front that had these two uh, bumps that came out of it that were exactly the same width as your average shopping cart. And one day we're driving along at the end of an alley by my house. There's a shopping cart sitting there. And Dan Donnie says, hey, pull over, man. Pull over, man. I want to try something. And so we pull the car over. We get in line in the alley get the shopping cart right between those two bumps. Donnie gets in, Bobby gets in the passenger seat, I get in the driver's seat, we start pushing this cart down the alley. And we're going faster and faster, and we're all laughing and laughing. And we get, and the alley's a pretty long alley, it's about maybe, I don't know, eighth of a mile or so. And we get going down that alley, and we're going maybe 20 miles an hour, and then the cart's starting to buck. And it occurs to me suddenly that this alley empties out onto a street. And while the car has brakes, the shopping cart doesn't, and at that same moment, I kind of look over at Donnie, and he's looking at me with his white knuckles on the shopping cart. And I think he'd just come to the same realization and, and regret. And I tried to slow down as carefully as I could, but that cart had momentum. And it goes shooting out into the street. And luckily, there are no cars coming. Uh, hits the curb on the other side, goes end over end. He goes flying out of the cart and lands on someone's front lawn. And uh, as we get out of the car and walk over there, he's, he's bloodied but laughing. And uh, it's actually a pretty good story. <laughs> All right. Jesus. There's got to be something here. 
All right, well. Oh, I know what it is. Okay, I got one. We got time for one more? Yeah. Okay, all right. This is a good one. Okay, so um, fresh out of college. I'm not saying I graduated, but fresh out of college. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I got a job working at a uh, bookstore. And uh, it was a good job. And we used to go after, after work because we worked late hours. Bookstores would close down around 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. And then we'd spend you know, a good two hours cleaning up after all you slobs who just leave the books lying everywhere in those places. It's a fucking disaster. We spend tons of time cleaning that place up. And at the end of the day, it's, it's midnight, and we're exhausted. So we go out, and there, there were bars we go hang out with. This was TGI Fridays. We go hang out TGI Fridays. And I don't know, midnight, TGI Fridays on a, on a weeknight. The crowd there is not really, not really going to meet a lot of, I don't know, like how classy people, I guess. <laughs> um, but once in a while, you get lucky. And I got lucky one night, and I met, I met a girl. And um, I'll call her, what did I call her? I got to check what I called her, because otherwise I'm going to say her real name, and then... No waiver I signed here is going to get rid of those regrets. <laughs> Betty, I'm going to call her. Uh, so, Betty, so Betty was great, and she was fun, and she had fun friends. And again, like, you know, not, not, you know, not the classiest person, but at that point in my life, I wasn't really looking for the classiest person to hang around with. And we had a lot of fun, went out to a lot of parties and things. We just kind of hung out. We dated briefly, maybe three or four dates. And this was around the end of the year, it was around New Year's. And um, she was going to Vegas for New Year's. Now, this story, first off, this story takes place in, in the very early 90s. I think it was like 92 or somewhere around there. And um, th this, this story uh, is completely separate from any other story you might have heard or seen. And that's part of this. I'm going to get to this. Um, so you know, if it seems familiar to you, just go with it. So uh, she goes to Vegas with her friends for the weekend. I'm kind of sitting around alone. I don't, I'm not really going out because I'm not trying to meet anybody at this point. And it's New Year's Eve. feeling a little sorry for myself. And I'm just kind of watching the news, and uh, there's this huge accident on the, on the 14, leading out to Vegas. And I think, oh my god, what if, what if Betty's in that accident? And so I'm like, well, you know, I'll, it's New Year's Eve, she's probably busy, but I'll, I'll, this day everybody had pagers, right? You didn't have a, a mobile phone, you had pagers. So I paged her, and uh, figured out oh, she'll call me, no, whatever. So a couple hours go by, I don't hear back, and I'm actually starting to get worried. And so she had, you know, Pedro also had voicemail attached to it. So I call and I just figure I leave. I just, hey, you know, I'm, hey, Betty, I'm calling you up. Just wanted to let you know that I'm thinking about you. It's New Year's Eve, and uh, you know, I heard there's an accident on the way up to the up to the Vegas, and want to make sure you're okay. So you know, give me a call when you have a minute. No big deal. Have a have a good time. Talk to you later. Uh, I'd like I'd like to say like maybe three or four more hours went by. It was probably more like an hour, and I had a couple drinks at that point, <laughs> and I start to really get worried that she's not calling me back. So I pick up the phone and I call her again. And I say, hey, you know, uh, Betty, it's, it's Jonathan. Just, uh, you know, thinking about you. Uh, hope you're okay. Miss you. Ha have fun in Vegas. Call me if you have a chance, you know. Now I'd like to say, you know, another hour went by. It was probably more like 15 minutes. And this goes on, and you can see where it's going. And uh, next I heard from Betty was through a mutual friend who I ran into at the bookstore, and she said, don't ever call Betty again. <laughs> So now, that's not my real regret. As regretful as that story is, that's not my real regret. My real regret, regret is both that the, the movie Swingers came out and that my wife is a fan of the movie because there's a scene in that movie that is almost identical, except really played up for the cringes of what happened to me that night. And I have to watch that movie probably three or four times a year now, probably for the rest of my life because I'm married to somebody who loves that movie. And every time I see that scene, 
it reminds me of what I did that New Year's Eve. And that is the biggest regret of my life. Thank you. It just occurred to me that now I've told it, and it's going to be on a video on the internet. Okay, so maybe now that's not the biggest regret of my life either. Hey everyone, one of our favorite sponsors is the Humble Bee Cafe, located in Northridge, California. Fantastic food, fantastic location, um, amazing, almost all of it's organic, fantastic pizzas, so check it out if you're in the valley. Our next storyteller is Alex, and he tells a kind of a funny and sad story about being a house painter and encountering a grumpy old man. Hi. I didn't, it's not interactive. I was just trying to say anything. Uh, my name is Alex Manugian. Um, once upon a time, there were two brothers named Herman and Noel, and they became spies in World War II. And they worked in Europe rescuing anti-fascists from the Nazis. And they were incredible heroes. But in 1949, Noel disappeared in Eastern Europe. And Herman finally learned that he was arrested by communists, even though he had helped rescue communists from the Nazis. And so he flew to Poland, furious and seething with righteous indignation, to go set these morons straight and free his brother. And he was brought to a police station, taken to the cellar where he was kept for five years. And when he was finally freed five years later, like his brother who had been kept for six years, and his brother's wife, and his brother's two children, they asked him if he had any regrets about what he'd done. And he said his only regret was that stupid righteous indignation he walked in with that made him so blind to the danger that he walked into. Well, my brother and I, in 1988, started a painting company. We were not quite as heroic as these two <laughs> brothers, but we were pretty awesome at painting. When we started, there were seven painting companies in our town, and two years later, there were two, us and the painting company that had been there for generations. And we painted amazing places. We painted a church. We painted a town hall. We painted two churches. We painted houses from the 1800s, houses from the 1700s. And one time we got a call from an old couple who had a house from 1664. This was and still is one of the oldest standing houses in America. And my brother couldn't do the job. He was busy, but I couldn't turn it down. It was irresistible to work on a house that was that old. Well, he wanted me to glaze all the windows of his house. Glazing is that putty that goes around all the panes of old windows. And that's a specialized job, and you get to charge a lot for that, three or four times what you charge for painting. But this couple were in their 80s, and the gentleman, Mr. Field, did not believe in the 
fees of the 1990s. He believed in the fees of the 1950s, and he was mortified at what I wanted to charge him. So I agreed to a much lower rate than I should have. And then it got more complicated because there was only one door to the house, and it was locked with a 330-year-old iron key. So he refused to let me have it, so he refused to let me go in and out of his house. And I explained to him, that's pretty hard to open and close all the windows and do all the glazing if you can't get in the house, but he refused to let me in the house. Um, and he would stand and watch me as I did the work and criticize me as I went. And I did not care for this gentleman. Luckily for me, he and his wife went on a trip partway through the visit. And as soon as they left, he put his son in charge, his grown son, and his son immediately said, of course you can have the key. You can get in and out of the house anytime you want. And I was really appreciative. And he just said, you know, just take care of the key. It's very important to him. And of course, I swore I would take great care of the key. So by lunchtime that day, I lost the key. <laughs> and I looked everywhere. I looked in all of my supplies and my tools. I looked all over the ground. I scoured the ground. I could not find the key. I rented a metal detector. And... <laughs> I, will, I looked everywhere, and I found some nails. I didn't find any awesome old coins like you always think you're going to when you rent a metal. At least that was my dream as a kid. I'd rent them. Jesse, you know what I mean? You, you rent a metal detector. You think you're going to find awesome treasures. I found nails, and I didn't find an iron key. And I confessed it finally to the son, Alan, and he was a 47, 48-year-old man, and the look of horror on his face was maybe the worst part about it because... I was going to get him in trouble with his crotchety old father, Mr. Field. And uh, I started to get mad. I started, instead of feeling guilty, I felt more and more indignant about the fact that this old man wasn't even making me feel this way. He had put me in this situation. He had made me lose this key by being so crotchety about it all. But I kept looking. And I looked everywhere, and finally, I was looking in places where it couldn't possibly be. And I looked inside the house and drawers of their house. And I'll admit, in every house that I ever painted, I went through all the drawers of all the houses. <laughs> I never stole a thing. I never even borrowed anything, like the previous uh, storyteller. Uh, <laughs> borrowed, which he officially didn't regret, by the way. Um, <laughs> I never stole, oh, why should you? It's a good bike. Why should, uh, I never took a thing. I just wanted to learn everything about these families. Well, I finally found it. Not the key. I found the manuscript that this man was writing about when 40 years earlier he had flown into Warsaw to find his brother and got thrown in a cellar <laughs> for five years. And... I felt kind of bad about that. And it reminds me of what Garrison Keillor likes to say, which is that uh, righteous indignation is actually America's favorite pastime. And the worst moment for me was when they returned and I had to tell him that I'd lost his key. What I didn't know at the time was this was their first trip back to Eastern Europe since the wall had fallen. <laughs> He was doing research for his book. <clears throat> uh, and when I told him, 
he laughed this high-pitched laugh. It was the perfect vocalization of disbelief. And then he just walked away. And then his wife, the same wife who would rescue him from that prison after five years, risking her own life to do so, forgave me immediately, said it was all right. I didn't have to worry about it. And that was truly the worst moment because that was the moment that my righteous indignation bubble burst. And I felt so ashamed and so regretful. I never found the key. <laughs> uh, the flap cover of the book has a quote from a reviewer that said that Herman Field survived those five years of, of uh, psychological torture and living in a straitjacket and endless interrogations with his wit with his courage and with his Quaker pacifist <laughs> upbringing. <laughs> so this was the ogre that I had found to be so evil. Was this true hero and pacifist Quaker? And uh, still to this day, I've never found a key. I have a feeling it's buried away in some cellar in Warsaw, and hopefully someday I'll find it, but it will not make the shame go away. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everyday Short Stories. I'm your host, David. If you really liked it, go to my YouTube channel or my Facebook page or even my website, everydayshortstories.com, and give us some love. And don't forget to tell your everyday short stories.